Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, founder of Lola Media, new fan of hit Showtime show, Yellow Jackets. I just started this show, Paul, and I must say, it's one of those love-hate relationships with the show where I don't really enjoy watching it because it's kind of insane, but I need to know what happens, and so I watched an entire season over the course of a week. I don't know if you've seen Yellow Jackets. I feel like you mentioned it before. Well, no, so we were actually on the Daily Zeitgeist podcast, oh, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. you mentioned <laughs> that was your favorite show. That was last year, about, I think it was like April or they, May they last were year. Talking about, they were talking about Yellow Jackets. I still hadn't seen it, and just randomly— Oh, you were Station Eleven. Yeah, I was Station Eleven, and randomly I'm, I'm in D.C. visiting family, yeah. and I walk in on my sisters watching the show, and I was like, oh, this is what everyone keeps telling me about. It also turns out a good friend of mine's fraternity brother is one of the characters in the show, and I just, I'm looking at the screen like, oh, that's Steve Kruger. Uh, and then it turns out he's the coach in the show. And I'm, and then I just got invested in it. Now I'm watching season two. Why doesn't he, if he's a good friend, why doesn't he come on BC? Well, we don't have a lot of guests. Well, he's a good friend. He's my good friend's good friend. Okay, good friend square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little removed from me. But I was happy to actually see him like on a hit show. That was pretty cool. I, um, per Jessica's insistence, recommendation, I started a show, new to me, not new to you, but it's uh, Medici. I don't know if I've seen this show. It's a Netflix series. It's three seasons. It didn't quite take off, and I think critics were not sort of enamored with it, but it has a really star-studded cast. It's about you know the m- most powerful initial banking family oh. uh, in Italy oh, right. that of rose to power and sort of was aligned. They, they had four popes in their lineage and I think two queens of France. And anyway, they're integral to the development of the Renaissance and art and science in Europe. And so they knew like Donatello and Michelangelo and Galileo. But in any event, I've only watched the first episode, so I can't I can't say too much about it. But I like shows that are historically grounded, if not necessarily historically accurate. Yeah. As opposed to something like a Game of Thrones, which sure, is sure, sure, awesome sure. in its own way. There's a value, I think, to being historically grounded. You feel like you're learning. Not too far back in history, but I'm excited about the new Apple movie on Tetris and Nintendo. It's supposed to be incredible. I see that ad on all of my devices. It looks amazing. And I've been separately going down like a gaming rabbit hole for some work stuff. And I've been watching a lot of games, learning about the history of gaming. And and this movie just cut, pops up. I'm excited. I'm going to watch it soon. But um, it's supposed to be fantastic. History, like the history of Nintendo, I guess, in this game. So kind of in your wheelhouse. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and this is completely out of left field. But I think we because we did talk about it last season, the serial update, Anan Syed, oh, yeah. I saw that his conviction got reinstated yeah. uh, in the state of Maryland because apparently 
there was a process that was not complied with and the topsy-turvy nature of this. And criminal law is not my area, but we will talk about it later in this episode. That one's, you know, it's one of those things where you see something like that and I know people got excited about it and obviously there's like a, there's a family involved and the victim's family. and Well, that's that was the that was the issue. So right. the victim's family time, was not right? properly notified to attend the hearing yeah. over, I guess, the Brady violation. So, you know, who knows how it goes, but just more twists and turns in that story. But let's take a quick break and dive into some shakeups that are happening at the Mouse House and Marvel specifically. For those who, who don't know, the Mouse House is, is Disney. And this past week, Disney has announced, uh, well, earlier when Bob Iger took over, they announced an aggressive sort of cost-cutting plan, $5.5 billion that they want to save. And they announced that they would be doing 7,000 layoffs, uh, which would happen in waves, the first of which happened this week. Yeah. And several divisions were impacted. And one of those was, uh, there's some cuts at Marvel. And although this is probably not related to those layoffs, the story we're going to lead off with is um, Victoria Alonso was fired from Marvel uh, not that long ago, I think third week of March. And uh, I mean, it's a really huge story. When I first heard about it, I was shocked because she's been uh, such a fixture at Marvel, you know, pre-Iron Man. So pre-MCU, I think she started in 2006 as a co-producer and she's been there for 17 years and was now like the president of physical production, post-production, VFX, and animation. So huge, basically in the triumvirate with Kevin Feige, Ludi Esposito, and Victoria Alonso. She was a leader in the field, leader in the company, and she also happens to be a lesbian and she's also from Argentina. She's very passionate about those right, two things, right, right? right? The representation of minorities, the representation and expansion on, and embracing LGBTQ rights. And she had clashed with previous leaders at Disney and, and notably Bob Chapek over his response to the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill. And she had made some statements, I think, at a GLAAD event talking about how they want their you know, they want to be not not just someone that's tolerated. They want to be embraced. They want to flourish, you know, LGBTQ, all people of all different backgrounds. And there was also some creative friction about, you know, her and some editing that was requested by different countries. They were trying to censor right, right, specific right, scenes right, that featured right. or promoted pride culture, which we'll dive into in a bit. But I just wanted to say personally, like I worked with her when I was at Marvel I worked with her team actually pretty closely because I was the lead VFX attorney from 2012 to when I left in 2015. Uh, I didn't I didn't know that you were a v, VFX attorney. Yeah. Sorry, just what exactly, what's the specialty there? So, I mean, like anything, it, it starts with contract law and it's deals. So like visual effects is deal work on film and TV where, you know, you represent either a producer or a VFX house and you have a, an obligation to like deliver a certain amount of shots within a certain timeline for a certain budget. And then there's edits and uh, rounds of revision and it's all within certain spe- specifications and qualities. So for example, like if it's Avengers, someone may have to build the whole final battle scene where you're right, sort of right. in Manhattan, right outside Grand Central and you have the aliens, you have like Loki flying around. So all of that stuff, some of it is shot the stuff on the ground people are shooting and they're wearing, you know, like the motion capture suits. 
but a lot of that is is added in right, post, right. particularly with Marvel. And so it's an area where it's about a third of the budget. And it also encompasses pre-viz, pre-production, you know, working with the costume department on how things are going to look, concepts, and then you're involved in the shoot, but then really the magic happens after the shoot and you're turning all these works in progress into the final thing that we see on the screen. I was essentially the the lead lawyer for that department. So that's a very that's a very cool gig. It was a cool gig, but I would say my one interaction. Well, I had a bunch of interactions with Victoria, but in my initial interaction with her, things had been going fine, and I worked with a lot of her sort of lieutenants and people on her team, and people, and it was fine. But then there was one instance where things weren't fine, and that's when she got involved and she uh, made her feelings, you know, known, and she's bold, sort of aggressive, some would say, you know, tough, I would say, but fair. And after that first sort of like real interaction, other, you know, beyond just sort of saying hi and bye and being friendly, uh, when it got down to brass tacks, you know, I, I, she made her concerns known and they were addressed. And after that, it was like clockwork. She was, I would say, tough, but fair. And she led a huge department, right? Because Marvel is one of the biggest spenders on on visual visual effects. effects. And that gave her a lot of power over contractors, right? Because it's not the type of thing where like you, if you're a VFX house, you can't not be doing Marvel work. Well, you want to be doing Marvel, right? Like if you don't have a, I would assume that you want a Marvel contract because it's probably good work, pays well, consistent. It's also a good name to have on the resume or whatever it might be on the track record. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, it's, it's nuanced. I think Clearly, they are big spenders and they're at the top of the game, yeah. right? So their budgets on Marvel films are, are you know, at top of the line. And so you want to be doing Marvel work because you want to be working on big budget, cutting edge things. And that's all, you know, true. But on the, same, on the flip side, the VFX community and the VFX producers and production houses have also levied some criticisms about the intense demands and right, pressures right, and timelines right. and sort of lack of organization that was coming out of Marvel VFX because sometimes they're just changing things on the fly and and it feels like and 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 listen that's just a nature that's part of the nature of the beast right the when and we talked about this we've talked about this before when I was at Marvel I started before the Disney acquisition they were making one movie every two years and then it got ramped up to three to four movies a year plus Disney plus shows. So it went like the pace of projects that they had to release in order to feed Disney plus and maximize theatrical box was three or four X what it was, what it was when I joined and added more people to the team, but the timelines are just more intense. And so that puts pressure on your vendors. And the other thing is like, you're always making changes to things because it's creative and it's never fully done. And so that was a criticism that a lot of VFX houses I think had about just the demanding nature of working for Marvel and Marvel's got a lot of leverage so they can demand sort of aggressive pricing. And and that was, I think, a criticism. But, you know, in, in the world that we're in, in the business and legal side, I mean, if you are a good, successful business and you give out a lot of work that gives you the ability to sort of demand terms that maybe others can't. So it's a gift and a curse. And Victoria Alonso was like involved, like VFX, like for the most part, like that is her on almost like every post-production because she's an executive producer on every Marvel movie, including Guardians 3, even though it's not out yet, you know, that she was an EP on that as well. So she's like heavily involved in all of that. And But I'm curious, like, 
like who steps in in a role like I mean that's something that's obviously you have expertise you're managing many people like you said like there's a lot of things happening there that's probably not just something very easy to like walk in and fill those shoes sure I mean are Victoria Alonso's growing on trees no <laughs> right but she does have a team yeah and so the way I would describe Marvel is like you know you have the three well I guess now two you have Kevin and Lou and Then you had Victoria. They oversee all the movies and Disney Plus shows. So wherever they are in like pre-production, production, production, post-production, development, all those different things, Kevin and Lou and Victoria formerly were all involved in all of those. And so they would have their own lieutenants and deputies that were in charge of a specific film. And it's like person A, Stephen Broussard or whoever, you see this film from start to finish. That is your baby. And then you loop me in when you have questions and you loop me in at different stages of the process. So you can't be heavily involved at every decision on every project. But so they're more high level looking at pre-production on some projects, current production on other projects, post-production on other projects. And then they have their teams that are sort of in the weeds on the films themselves. And then they just make the decisions that are sort of at their threshold. And so Victoria has a team too. She has people under her that have been there for, I would assume, 10, 15 years, as long as she's been there, who know the vendors, who know Kevin, who could probably step up. So maybe not necessarily her, but she's trained people to do what Marvel needs. The big thing here is that how does someone as big of her, like, you know, if she's top three or was top three people in Marvel, she's been there for 17 years. She's an executive producer on like every movie and, and TV show related to Marvel. This, it's not just like, um, you know, someone gets let go. Like this is someone who was there from the very beginning and obviously is a, is a big person at Marvel gets let go. Like it's a big deal. Right. Like someone like that just doesn't get terminated with that. Right. So let's like, let's get into that. OK, because I don't have the answers. And in full disclosure, I haven't been at Marvel in seven or eight years. So I'm not involved day to day in anything that happens at Marvel. But I know Victoria. And I worked with her and I was at Marvel at a formative time. And so I understand a little bit about the culture and sort of how Disney impacted it. And this is right. an act, this potentially could go to litigation because Victoria Alonso ha- has hired a prominent litigator. She may tr- try to file a wrongful termination lawsuit against Disney over this exact thing. So there's things that, you know, right. we have right. to proceed delicately in this show right. because it could actually be an act of litigation. And I don't think there's a clear answer on any of this, but I think we can discuss sort of the factors that may have been at play. And I think there's a couple from Disney's side. One one thing you have to understand is Victoria, people at her level, right. they're, they're under employment contracts. And so most employees are at will. And as long as that's a thing, right, you can be hired and fired for any reason or no reason. And if it's a discriminatory reason, then you may have a wrongful termination claim or if it's a retaliation against like some whistleblower or if you were harassed and then you complained about it and they fire you. Those are very narrow circumstances where you might be able to make a wrongful termination claim. But generally speaking, employers have a lot of discretion to terminate their employees, even if they are producing, right? Because it's at will. If you're a contract employee, that's different. And you may may have more protections and you may only be able to be terminated for cause or various things like a breach of your contract. But you have, in theory, more job security if you're a contract employee, but most people don't have the leverage to get those types of contracts. Victoria did. So she was under contract. One of the things 
that contract typically says is, you know, we're paying you this. Maybe you're getting bonuses. Maybe you have equity in the company. You have to be right. fully on board right. and invested in our success. You can't work on outside projects without our approval because we want all your time and focus and energy and 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 your talent devoted to things that are going to benefit us and our shareholders. Right. So no outside projects. And pretty and that's pretty common across industries for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're freelance, it's if you're an independent contractor, then you it's a different classification. You're not an employee. You don't get benefits. And your employer can't right, penalize right. you for working on outside things uh, as long as you get your your work done. Like they can maybe say that during certain periods of time you're exclusive or whatever. But generally speaking, you're the one that dictates who you work for and what projects you do. If you're an employee, then it's a it's a common thing. And so in this case, apparently she got permission. It's a little gray to do to work on Argentina 1985 which is an Amazon film about a very important- yeah, Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated, very important time in Argentina's history that she grew up experiencing, right? So she was young growing up in Argentina. She left to co- be, become an actress in America and she pivoted to VFX or visual effects. But at the time she said like she could have easily been targeted by what the government was doing and there was a military coup and this movie was about that. So it was important for her to be a part of telling the story. You know, she's this luminary in the film and television industry now and there's a film about a formative time in her life that's coming out. She wants to work on it. It happens to be be made by Amazon. Apparently Disney allowed it. It's not clear. Disney said it's a breach of her agreement. Whether working on it or promoting it, it it's speculation. But- what we're reading in the press is that she may have gotten permission to work on it, but only if she didn't promote right, it. Right, you right, know, Outwardly right, right. say she was involved. And she also did promotion for it because it was Oscar nominated. And so she was showing up at red carpet events and talking about her involvement, which Disney is claiming is a breach of contract. And that is, I think, ostensibly. And that's saying like when, when you're going about you're in front of the press. There's, a, you know, you're on red carpets, and you're not talking about Disney. You're not talking about Marvel movies. You're talking about something that's completely different. But you're associated with Marvel, and I, I guess that is seen as like, well, if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna be out there, at least be talking about like a Disney or Marvel film. In this case, you're talking about something completely different that has nothing to do with Disney. For sure, and actually, you could say competitor because if right. it's on Prime Video, that's a front and center competitor to Disney Plus, and so. You know, if you were someone that was ahead of product for Coke and then you're out there, you know, promoting new Pepsi or whatever. Yeah. Um, or Pepsi Peeps. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't know why people, why they even make that. But anyway, that that's the sort of analogy, right? It's you can't work on competitive projects and certainly you can't be out there promoting them because that's literally, you know, you're not an independent contractor. There are people that can do that, but they're independent contractors. They don't get the benefits of being an employee. They yeah. don't get whatever she was getting from Disney. So Disney's position is this is a straight breach of contract. We don't know. There may have been other things at play. You know, there was arguably creative missteps. There, Not every movie is perfect. And to expect every movie to be Avengers Endgame or whatever is unrealistic. But I think there were some criticisms about Quantumania, Eternals, potentially Thor Dark World, right, and the right. VFX just not really coming together. Although she did a phenomenal job, it wasn't like she was, like every movie was perfect. Uh, but part of that, as we discussed earlier, 
is due to the insane time pressure and the amount of projects that are in the pipeline and the size of the team. So who knows if that was all her. That's also where like a Disney, um, sorry, a, a Disney plus like on, on Marvel, like for example, Moon Knight doesn't probably have the same budget for VFX because like the end of Moon Knight, people were like, well, this was a bit weak on the VFX stuff, but it's not the same budgets as like a, as an Avengers film. No, no. The, the streaming shows are not a- anywhere near the budgets of the movies. I mean, maybe they're, High seven, gosh, that's eight high figures an episode, which is high. Right. They might spend a hundred million on a season, but not a hundred. The hundred million would be like right, the VFX right, right, budget right, right, right. for a film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that hundred million isn't just VFX on TV. It's it's a lot of it's going to the actors, the locations, everything else. So the budgets are smaller, but the expectations are high, and that was an issue on She Hulk as well. That's right. Uh, then there was some other potential controversy over. LGBTQ stuff and her response and challenging Bob Chapek to be more vocal in response to Florida's legislation. And there were some creative differences. In particular, Kuwait asked to um, blur out some pride flags in a scene in Quantumania. She didn't want to make the edit. She refused to make the edit, in fact, and said, no, like, why are we sort of diminishing this culture or obscuring it? We want to embrace it. And you know, Scott Lang was walking through um, San Francisco and there were some flags in the shot, pride flags in the shot, and she wanted to keep them. And she insisted that they keep them. Marvel made the edit anyway without her approval. So there were a couple factors, maybe some chinks in the armor, but this was a result of a decision that involved Disney HR, the head of the studio on Bergman. Apparently Kevin was, you know, in the loop and I don't know how much he resisted. So apparently Victoria was blindsided, but this was according to Disney, not without justification. And we'll hear more from it because I, I believe that from what I read in the press is that- Vic- She might sue. Victoria either might sue, but it was going to come up, come out and you know tell, the, tell her side of the story. Right. And her attorney, Patty Glazer, has said, uh, this has nothing to do right. with breach of contract. This is targeting um, someone who had a different view about the you know treatment of LGBTQ community. And that's what this is. And this, she's trying to steer it into a wrongful termination claim as opposed to a breach of contract claim. So right, you know, we'll right, watch that right. play out. I don't yeah, have any it's hairy. information about it. It's hairy. It's, yeah, it's hairy. Um, we'll do a great breakdown. Sure. So let's take a quick break and talk about another potential insignificant Marvel change. Okay, Paul. So, honestly, this one, this one's a tough story because this guy, Jonathan Majors, one of the biggest stars right now, was just in Creed Three with Michael B. Jordan. He's obviously the main villain now in this new phase of Marvel as Kang, who was recently arrested in New York City on charges of strangulation, assault, and harassment, a domestic dispute with a 30-year-old woman who may or may not be his partner. And, and, and right now, all we really know is based on what we've read in, in the press that he did get arrested for these charges and uh, would love for you to just kind of break down what's happening here. Yeah, and, and there may be some people who don't know. Jonathan Majors is one of the f- most sought-after actors in yeah. the game now, Amazing. his career is taking off in a really short timeline. In 2019, he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco, and now he's sort of the lead, supposed to be the lead villain in Phase Six of the MCU. He's Kang, so he's in two, at least two Avengers movies. Uh, he was in Creed Three. He's in a ton of things, 
And he's actually, he had a, a lot of trauma sort of early in life. I believe he was homeless in Texas, managed to sort of persevere, get through that situation. I think he went to the Yale School. Of- yes, a pretty prestigious like acting school. He got a master's from Yale. And so he is one of the rising stars, certainly along with Michael B. Jordan, sort of like the face of black Hollywood. And it's a really troubling story that he would be involved in this situation, domestic violence. And as you said, he was arrested in Manhattan on allegations of assault, strangulation, harassment. And then he was arraigned and actually charged with misdemeanor assault. And so- That's the facts. His lawyer, he retained a lawyer. She's come out and said he's innocent. He was the one that called 911 because the person that he was with was having an episode and maybe the aggressor. And also they recently released a bunch of texts from the the alleged victim saying that he didn't do anything and it wasn't an attack. But all of this to me is unfortunate and, you know, Innocent until proven guilty, for sure. That's the way the society works. That's the way our legal system works. But the way our business and legal system works is is sometimes like PR matters. And if you are innocent, but you've been implicated in something like this, like strangling a woman or or beating her up, it's just- It's bad news. You know, a non-starter deal breaker, unacceptable to a lot of people, including myself. I just, I don't think there's any circumstance where that would be okay. So let's play out his lawyer saying he didn't do anything. uh, He's innocent, but that's not exactly how it works. And I think his lawyer would know that. So in New York, right? Not it's different. Criminal law is different state by state. But in New York, domestic violence isn't treated like traditional crimes in the sense that if it's a normal crime, like you're walking down the street and someone punches you in the face, (laughs) that's that's normal. But if it happened and you didn't know them, it wasn't a domestic situation. And the cops were involved. You as the victim could decide whether or not you want to press charges. And the cops would give a lot of deference to what you wanted to do. In the domestic context, the victim's wishes are not that important. So basically what happens is if there's a call and cops respond to a domestic violence situation and they identify probable cause that an attack happened or that there was an injury, they have to make the arrest Right at, under right. those circumstances. If someone was a primary aggressor, they arrest that person. If both people committed felonies, then they arrest both people. In this case, Jonathan Majors was arrested without incident. They found what looked to be you know, evidence of an open hand slap. There was maybe damage. I don't know how you find evidence of strangulation unless it's actual, like real strangulation. And you could probably, there are probably maybe bruises on like around the neck or something like that. Yeah. It would have to be some sort of bruising, right? Or, or, or at least like a yeah. scrape or something, but it was serious. And so he was arrested. And whether or not the victim wants to press charges, it's really right. more a question of what does the evidence say? Does the evidence say that there was a substantial injury or potentially? Uh, severe injury, or does it say that it was kind of like, you know, a trivial injury? So if there is evidence of a substantial injury, then it's a misdemeanor. If it's more than that, or if there were weapons involved, then it could be a felony. And so he was arrested and arraigned, and then the judge looks at all the evidence, and they decided to charge him. So he was charged. Once you're charged, that means that they think they have the elements of a crime and that they want to proceed with the trial. A lot of different things could happen. And again, I'm not a criminal lawyer. This sure. is just sort of like what I've gleaned from the internet. And I did take criminal law in law school. But one of the things they do is they decide, is this person a threat to society? 
is this person going to leave? Are they going to harm the victim again? Are they going to leave the country? So it's like, are you a flight risk? Are you a threat to the health and safety of other people? Or if you're none of those things, then sometimes you can be released on your own recognizance. Maybe there's a protective order saying you can't go within X yards of the person. Sometimes you have to you have to make bail, which is like a financial commitment that you're going to be there for trial. And if you don't show up, then they can keep that. And if it's really severe, they might just throw you in jail until trial happens. So those are all these different things. So he was released. There was a protective order. He's out. He's working with his team. His lawyer released these texts, which purportedly exonerate him. But let me tell you why, for an outsider, sort of domestic violence is treated differently. And this is something that we learned about in law school, too. It's something called battered woman syndrome, battered wife syndrome, is a lot of times victims of domestic violence change their story and don't want to press charges and don't want to proceed against the person that harmed them for a variety of reasons, whether it's psychological trauma, a belief that the person will eventually come around and change. They express remorse, like the the perpetrator expresses remorse and says they'll change and the victim usually believes it because there's love there. There may be economic reliance or other factors. And so there's been a pattern of women who were harmed, decided not to press charges and then get hurt even worse or killed later on, right? Because a lot of times the, the perpetrators are repeat offenders and it's a cycle. And so it's like, a push, pull, forgive, things are okay for a while, and then an incident happens, maybe substance is involved, and then you just go right back into reverting into the behavior that caused trauma in the past, and sometimes it's worse. So New York has taken the position that, you know, whether or not the victim wants to press charges, we're going to proceed if we see evidence. And that's why these text messages aren't necessarily that compelling to me, because they could be something. And these are the, these are the text these are the text messages that she wrote, Jonathan Majors, that have been released about you know just saying how sorry she was, and then she doesn't want the judge to press charges, and she said that you know I told them that you didn't do this and specifically. That she, she she said he was responding to the fact that she tried to grab his phone. Right, that's another part. Like he didn't attack me. Right. right. She she apologized for, to him. Apologized to him for also him yes. being in this situation. Yes. She apologized to him. And so who knows, right? Like I said, innocent until proven guilty. Don't want to jump to conclusions. I hope that he is innocent and that he didn't hurt her or harm her. But based on the texts, it's not clear. And I don't think we can say definitively one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also based on the text, it's not clear that he did. He, she's not saying that he wasn't physical. Like that's not what she's apologizing for. She's saying, based on protocol and that we had a fight and the injuries, they had to arrest you. So she's like apologizing for the situation, but she's not saying that he didn't do anything. Which is, um, I think, it's not really. I, I guess what you're, what we're kind of what I'm getting from you is also like the texts don't really like make this guy seem innocent that he didn't do anything. Uh, I, I think the only thing that potentially would um, would make him be innocent in this case is that the lawyer from what I read said something like that we have video evidence that he wasn't involved. But I, I guess I don't know where you get that from. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you had like, I don't know, maybe we're dating ourselves like The Fugitive, right? Like that was a Harrison Ford movie <laughs> yes, where the guy, yes, the right. doctor, apparently <laughs> he, his wife was murdered. Everyone, all the signs pointed to him, but he said it was like some one-armed man. So if there was some third party intervening on video, like roughing up this girl that wasn't Jonathan Majors, right. that could exonerate him. Just the fact that she got beat up, but she may have instigated it or tried to grab his phone, 
that's not enough to no, exonerate no, someone. No, no. Like if he actually did beat her up. I mean, yeah, it doesn't so matter why he know. beat her up. He beat her up, whether he grabbed, like she tried to grab his phone or whatever, like he beat her up. If that's the case. Right. Unless there's video of her hitting herself or something. Right, I mean, right, right. I guess, or, or putting her hands around her own neck. Right. I mean, that would be the kind of video that may, may be helpful. But if it's, who knows? Who knows, right? yeah. And the emphasis of the law is that victims change their story because they feel like things are going to improve right, or they right. are economically reliant on the person and they don't want that to end. But the cycle has been repeated so many times to the detriment of women that the law doesn't, at least in New York, doesn't really allow them to sort of say, oh, everything's fine. We're not going to press charges. It's not up to her. Well, and that's, I, I guess that's, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Because when you're reading the text, it's like you can see that she feels bad about what's happened. But one of the things that you had mentioned that if she says, I don't want to press charges, it's not really up to her. It's now like New York City who says, well, actually, you are dangerous. We're going to press charges against you. Is that correct? Right, exactly. And and furthermore, I mean, he could be exonerated, but there's still really significant potential yeah. consequences for him as an actor because it's like, you know, a lot of people are just going to be turned off by the fact that this even occurred. He was in supposed to be in an army ad campaign to help recruitment. The army shifted. They're not using him. They're saying, we'll let the investigation play out. Who knows what Marvel's position is? Typically, an actor and talent agreements, more common now than ever before, I think. We're putting in, you know, for my clients, we're putting in morals clauses that say, hey, if you're involved in anything that would bring us into disrepute, you know, if you're arrested or charged or whatever, even if you're not, but you're involved or implicated in a situation, we have the right to terminate your contract. Right. right? So those right. sorts of things happen. Now, that's a term that gets negotiated. Sometimes if you're on the talent side, you wanted to say, no, we actually have to be convicted of a crime and blah, blah, blah. And so I don't know what spectrum his his agreement, you know, where his agreement lies on that spectrum, but I would presume that there's some sort of morals clause in his agreement, which would, you know, allow Marvel Disney to say that he breached the deal and that he doesn't have to, they don't have to use him in yeah. whatever movies. Well, I mean, it's like he's going to be in multiple movies and it's not even just Maybe. playing one role. I we mean, so he, he was already, sorry, what, what I meant to say is he was already going to be, the character of Kang was going to be appearing in a few movies uh, in this like next phase, phase six of, of Marvel and where he's playing multiple versions of that character. It, it's not like a small role that just gets cut here in this case. It's it's a big deal for both people from your standpoint of a career and then from Marvel too. Yeah, I mean, this is, it makes me think of um, when Terrence Howard was replaced by Don Cheadle as War Machine. I mean, it's bigger I'm than just that. Thinking that. It's too, bigger yeah. than that, but it's, it's just a, such an unfortunate thing. I hope, I hope to God that this was a misunderstanding it's and that she wasn't hurt and that he wasn't involved and that, you know, I, I, I hope, but I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see. We'll have to just, it's not like this is a minor actor in this case. He's one of the biggest actors in the world right now on one of the biggest franchises in the world. And um, I'm sure that we'll, we'll find out what is happening here um, and we'll keep everyone up to date. Right. And I guess the one thing I'd say is that the legal result may not ultimately impact the business result, but sure. Well, sorry to end on a sad note. That's our show for this week. Yeah, thanks for the great breakdown, Paul. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, folks. Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>